the single most important question, which is a curiosity question, is what can I do to help you? You're listening to WERALP, Arlington, Virginia, 96.7 FM, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. Coming to you from the studios at Arlington Independent Media, I'm your host, Lynn Borton, and this is Choose to be Curious. Welcome. This is a show all about curiosity. We talk about research and theory, but mostly it's conversations about how curiosity shows up in work and life. This week, I wanted to focus on lessons learned, on the choice to be curious about what we take from what's happened. Before there was the radio show Choose to be Curious, there was the blog, Listening to the Universe. It was all about life lessons. I wrote, every minor tragedy, victory, or inane moment of my son's youth, and admittedly young adulthood, and likely well into our mutual decrepitude, has or will potentially be fodder for what I call a life lesson. I trust they've grown accustomed to my pronouncements in this regard. And here, I'm trying to collect the lessons I've been learning, memorializing them for myself and anyone else who will listen. So I've got a tradition of looking for the lessons hidden among the stuff that comes at us. And the inspiration for this show came when I heard Sharon Shuttler talk about a report she'd helped prepare for the Virginia Grassroots Coalition called Lessons Learned from the 2017 Virginia Elections, How the Grassroots Helped Flip Virginia Blue. I thought, how wise and good on them for taking time to extract the lessons of that remarkable mobilization, and even better, for sharing them with the rest of us. But before I get to Sharon, I want you to hear from Susan. Sometimes we ask a question, and we're looking for a particular kind of answer. We're looking for specific information or evaluating our own efforts, as with Sharon's report. Or perhaps we have some fairly well-developed idea about where the questions will take us. Sometimes that's what we get, and sometimes not. And so it was when Reen Barger sat down with his mother, Susan, to pose what seemed like a simple but especially lovely and loving query. The assignment is best friends. So it's to ask about your first best friend. Hmm. I'm trying to remember which one was first. There was a little girl named Roxanne who lived a few doors down and across the street on Ravenna Boulevard. And I know that that car that ran over me rolled down farther down the street and hit Roxanne's house, hit the chimney, and broke the house, and that Roxanne moved away. (laughs) So that's one I remember. I was only two when I got run over by that car, so I have vague recollections of Roxanne, little white girl with brown hair, shoulder length. I don't remember very much about those interactions. I just remember this feeling of inconsolable grief about that Roxanne wasn't there to go play with anymore. We were so young. Yeah, I don't think most people remember anything at two. Yeah, I mean, could she have even had hair that long? This could be all mixed up memories, you know. This is really early patchwork, so, you know, memory is kind of a funny thing where you you try to make sense of the pieces you have. 
Ravenna Boulevard winds down the hill like a stream meandering because it is next to the ravine with a stream in it. The house that I lived in was like a little peninsula bend that had road on almost three sides of it. I had a wooden rocking horse that my Uncle Albert had made for me that had my name painted on it. I was standing next to the riding, to the rocking horse, playing with it, and it got crushed. My mom was in the uphill yard over near the house, gardening, and she was digging and had dirt on her hands. And I was out just past the sidewalk in what some people call the tree row, standing out there playing with my horse when it happened. So somebody across this big wide boulevard, up the hill, parked their car improperly, and the car took off when she got out of the car. Her testimony was that she um, couldn't jump back in the car because she had school papers in her hands. And she couldn't let go of the papers. And it's that kind of thing where maybe you don't realize, oops, wrong priority, and now it's too late. (laughs) Yeah, I bet you'd like to take that back. Yeah. Huh. You've lived this this question. But everybody turned out all right, right? (laughs) Well, no. But... What you do have after you get injured is an infinite infinity of possibilities, opportunities, and strengths. It's just a different set of infinity than you started with before the injury. Uh, you may have to deal with things like pain or um, emotional pain. Uh, sometimes... Sometimes uh, intrusive thoughts that you can't get to go away, or and then you got to work on that. You got work to do. <laughs> Suddenly, you have a lot of work to do. <laughs> you try to make sense of the pieces you have in ways large and small that about sums up life. I think we try to make sense of the pieces we have. It feels like an abrupt transition to go from Susan's quiet reflection on a traumatic experience to a report on political mobilization. I understand that. But here's the connection I see. Life is what happens to us. Experience is what we make of what happens. By choosing to be curious about what happens and what we could make of it, we assert a modicum of control. We begin to make choices, as Susan has said, among the infinity of possibilities before us. And Sharon's choice was to figure out what worked and what didn't and what she could extract from that when she and others mobilized last year to flip Virginia Blue. Sharon Shuttler is an attorney. For much of her career, she was with the Department of Justice. And when she retired from federal employment in the fall of 2016, she figured she'd finally get a chance to relax. And the presidential election happened, and she found herself anything but relaxed. She mobilized. Then she reflected. 
and now she's here. So welcome, Sharon. Lynn, thank you so much for inviting me. It's really a privilege to be here today. I'm very excited about this, not least because this has given us a chance to reconnect after a long time of not knowing one another, but being connected through our kids in preschool. So welcome back. It's amazing. (laughs) Arlington's a small place. Indeed. So how did you get involved in the Flip Virginia movement? Well, you were entirely right. I had recently retired from Justice Department. I had worked primarily on oil spill cases, and before that, I'd been an attorney for the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. My background and my passion is environmental protection. Mm. So after a 30, nearly 31-year career doing just that, I thought I would take some time at our Northern Neck House and participate in environmental activities, (laughs) kayaking, canoeing, and that sort of thing. And then the election happened, and I felt an existential threat to the issues I really care about, environmental protection, and I felt like I had to do something. So I looked for ways to channel my angst that were positive and productive and kept my mind off of the bad stuff and instead focused on what could I do. And early on, I was lucky enough to find We Have Action, which is one of the many pop-up groups that came about as a result of the election. Several of my friends were already members, and I thought, okay, let me try this and see where that takes me. And early on, probably in January, February, We were very busy monitoring federal legislation, regulations that were coming out, and it was insane. And we were mobilizing efforts to contact our congressmen and our senators about how to vote on these issues. But the problem is they were already voting the right way (laughs) on these issues. And so it quickly became clear that this was not a great avenue. The good news is We Have Action was also focusing on state elections, and they had developed a model called Adopt a District or Adopt a Candidate, where basically you decide, here's a promising candidate, we're going to do what it takes to get you elected because we believe in you. And I thought to myself, that makes a lot of sense. You really can't change much at the federal level until you t- until you start working it out at the state level. Well, and it sounds like it also, um, you know, it's one of these places where you thought to yourself, well, what can I do? What's going to make a difference? What resonates for me? So did you end up adopting a candidate in I the sure Northern Neck? I did. No, <laughs> I did not. Oh, okay. I adopted a candidate in my hometown of Virginia Beach, Kelly Fowler, District 21. And by the time I got around to adopting Kelly, she was hurting. I mean, she didn't have hardly any money. Her current campaign manager had gone. She was in the process of trying to locate another campaign manager. And it was an eye-popping situation for me. I had no idea how challenging it was for a political novice like Kelly, who just wanted to go out and do the right thing, Mm -hmm. to run a campaign. Yeah. So I adopted Kelly. And helped her in sometimes write her platform. I helped her with fundraising. I helped her uh, with uh, get getting the vote out. I was down there for the whole week of get out the vote. And you've really never doors. done anything like this before, right? I mean, you never. were a newbie too, but you were tapping into your expertise or jumping in willing to try. Anyway, it sounds like it was a willing to try. I don't think I had <laughs> any expertise on this. <laughs> 
So that started in the early spring of 2017? Started in the early spring, but really, for me, picked up in the summer. Mm -hmm. And by the time the summer came, I was really fully involved with helping her in her campaign Mm -hmm. and setting up a fundraiser, uh, what we call a turnkey fundraiser, where all the candidate has to do is show up to your house Mm -hmm. and you have everybody else there, including our local representatives, Rip Sullivan and Barbara Favola, speak on her behalf. And also to try and get the word out through other grassroots groups that this particular candidate needed help. Yeah, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert here. I mean, one of the things I noticed in your report was that a lot of the emphasis on is like, do not create work for the candidates. Your job is to, <laughs> to follow their lead and 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 get out of the way at some extent. Yeah, that is a very important lesson learned. Mm-hmm. Is that it is critical if you want to be effective in helping a candidate get elected, which is really the job you're taking on. Right is to listen to the campaign. The single most important question, which is a curiosity question, is what can I do to help you? Yeah. What do you need? Not what is my idea of what's best for you? <laughs> so so you worked, I mean, you pushed right up through Election Day on 2017. And then what? Well, we all <laughs> gave a collective sigh of relief <laughs> <Okay>. and exhaustion. <laughs> And uh, we had a big party uh, yeah. that was at one of the local bars, and we even had some of the organizer, original organizers of the Indivisible show up at that party. And um, then I really started to think about what did we learn? How do we help other grassroots organizations, not only in Virginia but in other states, gear up and do what we ultimately did but do it quicker, mm-hmm. do it more efficiently, basically um, basically access our learning curve. Right. So right. I got together. There are several other women who are interested in doing this, uh, Michelle Moore, Amanda Hine, and our coalition leader, Louisa Boyarski, all pitched in, and together we worked on this project. So tell me what this project was. This project was to... Look at the lessons learned from the perspective of how the grassroots can best help campaigns. Wasn't the lessons learned about how do you select which campaigns to get involved in? It's really once you've decided to engage, what do you do? Mm -hmm. And to get there, we interviewed 16 different uh, campaigns. We either interviewed the campaign manager or the actual candidate. We interviewed some that won, some that lost, some in blue districts, some in red districts, to find out what it was that worked best for them. And was were the responses uniform? Some places, they were absolutely uniform. This mm-hmm. idea that we need you just to support us and not second guess mm-hmm. us and mm-hmm. try and micromanage us was really a consistent theme. Another consistent theme was be organized. (laughs) These campaign managers are like ping pong balls. You know, they are being buffeted by all kinds of groups and all kinds of organizations competing for their time and energy. If you as an organization offer a single point of contact to integrate what they need and let let your organization know what it is that they can do, that helps. That helps a lot. Yeah, yeah. I'm reminded of the the military uses a format called the after-action review, where a lot of it is 
you know, what was supposed to happen? What actually happened? Why was that? What do we want to do about that? And in this case, it seems like actually the goal was pretty clear, right? Get the candidate elected. So you didn't have to sort of revisit that goal, but people's motives coming in or people's ideas about how to do it. That might have, there. I can imagine there were rubs in places between volunteers and candidates. There were. And um, there was an instance where, um, for example, a volunteer wanted to contribute a lot of money to campaign signs. Mm. That wasn't the highest and best need from the campaign's perspective. They needed some monetary assistance for social media. So there can be rubs. And again, that doesn't mean like you must be a lemming and jump off the cliff <laughs> right. if the campaign says they'd like you to do something idiotic. But it does um, really acknowledge that they have developed some expertise and they have a game plan. Yeah. And um, So what were the other major lessons, takeaways? Other major lessons that we took away were it is true that canvassing and fundraising are the gold standard. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. However, there are an array of activities that organizations like our grassroots can undertake, which will truly help a campaign and which will also meet the volunteer where the volunteer is. Mm. Not all volunteers are comfortable canvassing. That's a challenge. Right. But they can do opposition research. They can do um, things like writing postcards. They can help with technology. We had a very active core that helped do uh, create videography for the candidates in order to professionalize oh, so them. So you had footage that you could deploy for whatever exactly. purposes. Exactly. And yeah. that was sure. all done by our grassroots volunteers. So that's an important lessons learned. And one of the one of the other important things that I really want to send home as an as a message is that an individual organization needs to take an inventory of what their volunteers have to offer, step one. And two, what are they willing to offer, mm. step two? Because that's two different things often. It's two different things. Yeah. Because once you hear what the candidate needs, if you understand what it is your organization can do, then you can figure out the matches pretty quickly. Right, right. And then be reliable. I'd like to add one other lesson learned. Um, and again, this is based on not knowing what we were doing to start out mm-hmm. with. But it turns out there seem to be two fairly effective models for carrying out this grassroots work. One is by literally adopting the district or the candidate, as I mentioned earlier. And in that capacity, you and your organization essentially become adjunct staff to that candidate. Mm-hmm. If they need fundraising, sure, I can do that. If they need a letter to the editor, sure, I can do that. If they may need you to house a staff person, sure, I can do that. You're basically there, and you are the go-to group to help that particular candidate out. It's a very effective model. But the other model, which I also found interesting, was specialty models. We had a couple of groups that were really good at fundraising. And when they found out a need, they would do flash fundraising for a specific candidate move on, then do it for another candidate. Oh, so they'd come in kind of like a SWAT team. They were SWAT team, exactly. And we had another group, Postcards for Virginia. That's all they did. You had a candidate that wanted postcards written. That's what they did. So we found both both approaches, which organically grew 
equally effective in different ways. Well, and that goes back to your comment about kind of being curious about, well, what's the need? What's my capacity and what's my willingness? And the, and the match of those three right. things together. And different people have different answers to that. That's exactly right. Yeah. So were there things that surprised you in your lessons learned? What surprised me was how hard it is for, as I mentioned earlier, a new candidate to really step up and take on this role. There's a lot less support than you would ever think Mm. from the political establishment, in part because the political establishment has limited time and money. And so what the grassroots can do and what they did do in a number of the cases is we became the people that filled in the gaps. Mm. And it's very important. It is the glue. So the lesson learned that surprised me the most is how impactful we can be once we sort of understand this playing field and we're willing to listen to the campaign. Very cool. So you talk about the document as a living document. And I'm wondering how and or if it has, in fact, changed or evolved since its original drafting. Do you feel like you keep learning lessons? Absolutely. We drafted it in February, and we did not send it out for an external or even really an internal review because our thinking was people need to get this right away. Mm -hmm. And then what we'll do is we'll take into account other comments. Well, we got some other comments really quickly from uh, members of our grassroots coalition that said, well, we really think you need to look more closely at this component of fundraising. And we said, you're right. And so we've already updated our document from February to a 2.0 version in March. <laughs> That's pretty good. So we've already started that process. And in addition, we have asked other organizations like Flippable, Sister District, some of these national groups to take a look at it and see if they have any feedback that they'd like to provide us based on their experience as mm-hmm. well. So what's the value in being curious about Assessing one's own impact. Well, if you've made mistakes, you're going to learn from them. Mm. And if you want to engage other people, you need to have something to help them learn from. And so the lessons learned is our attempt to make it easier for other people to replicate what we did without reinventing the wheel each and every time. Mm-hmm. So there's a ton of value. It's, to me, invaluable to approach it from this perspective. Well, and I'll just give a plug for the report. I have read it now two or three times in preparation for this. And it is such a, a nicely packaged distillation of rich lessons learned. So hats off to you and your team, um, and tell people where they can find it. This document can be found at virginiagrassroots.org. And I'll have it also on my Facebook page. So, so Sharon, what's next for you? Well, I'm trying to do a little more work for Sierra Club Legislative Committee in the state of Virginia, and... Um, doing a little bit of that. I've got my sights on the 2019 House and Senate races in Virginia, and I am planning to spend a lot of time on the Northern Neck. (laughs) Very nice. Very nice. Well, um, I have one more thing that's next for you. I warned you about my big jar of wannabe analogies, right? So reach in, take a slip of paper, 
I will take one for myself and one for the audience. And we're going to make an analogy to curiosity with whatever is on that slip of paper. And you can go first. I can go first. What do you prefer? I would love you to go first. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. So I have – who do I have? <laughs> I have cowbell. Um, hmm. How is curiosity like a cowbell? Uh, I associate cowbells with uh, road races and a way for uh, spectators to kind of cheer on runners. So I'll say that that's like curiosity because it's sort of a way of um, encouraging yourself and cheering yourself on to kind of go a distance and cover new ground um, and to have some fun with it and make some noise. I don't know. What do you have? <laughs> I have strawberries, and I feel challenged. <laughs> but in terms of curiosity, I would say that my curiosity is piqued because strawberries are so delicious and healthful, and I just want to know how to have more things like that in oh, my life. Nice. More curiosity and more strawberries. That would make for a pretty good life. And audience, uh, your word is broom. How is curiosity like a broom? I don't know. Let us know. Hashtag analogy. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for this. It's um, It's been fun to watch you in action. Delightful to read this report. And uh, I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks very much, Lynn. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM. If you joined us late or want to catch up with this or any of the other great programs here on Radio Arlington, check us out online and on demand at WERA.FM. You can hear all my previous episodes on iTunes, Mixcloud, SoundCloud, and Facebook, all at Choose to be Curious, and on my website at ChooseToBeCurious.com. If you appreciate what you've been hearing, like the episode and leave a review so others can find us among the gazillion other programs out there. I'd rather not be such a well-kept secret. Help a girl out. I hope you'll follow me on Twitter at choose number two, letter B, curious. And don't forget to send us your broom analogy, hashtag analogy. Many thanks to my guest, Sharon Shuttler. Check out Lessons Learned at virginiagrassroots.org. And on my Facebook page, remember, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get in the game. Special thanks to Reen and Susan Barger for their story, The Rocking Horse. More of Reen's work is available on SoundCloud. Links again on my Facebook page. Reen and I met through the D.C. Listening Lounge, an audio collective of Washington, D.C.-based sound artists and enthusiasts. The group meets monthly to listen together, lead workshops, take audio field trips, and much more. Links again on Facebook. Check it out. I hope you'll join me again next time. And until then, choose to be curious. Funding for Choose to be Curious on WERA 96.7 FM is provided in part by the Center for Parents and Teens, where families are strengthened through a connection built through positive communication, mutual understanding, and realistic expectations of one another. For more information, visit www.centerforparentsandteens.com.
Choose to be Curious is sponsored in part by realtor Christine Hopkins. Curious about real estate? Christine works with clients from around the world using her time and knowledge to build community. As she likes to say, community engagement has always been my big why. Working in real estate has helped me express that. What makes you part of a community more than living there? For more information, visit facebook.com slash Nova House Hunter.